This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right. Did you want me to do testing before I start? No? Okay. Praise the Lord. All right. Well, as you can see today, my topic is on sex in the media. Um, and like Michael said, I'm going to be sharing the, a lot of my presentation uh, is my testimony. So uh, I would just like you to please bow your heads one more time that I can say another word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, it is humbling uh, to be up here speaking Uh, to your children today. And Lord, I just know that you have ordained this opportunity. And so I ask humbly, Lord, that you will hide me behind your cross. As I have a lot to get through today, I just pray that you will help me not to stand in the way, um, not to stutter or stumble. Uh, But you promised that if I would go, that you would give me the words to speak. So I just claim that promise, Lord, today. And I ask for your divine timing, and thank you for your blessing, in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Amen. All right, so today, obviously, we're talking about some mature topics, and I just want to let you know there are some images that are kind of mature in this presentation. I have tried to err on the side of caution um, with this and be... um, be pretty conservative, and I I just want to let you know I'm not trying to shock or offend anyone today. My my burden is to illuminate this subject for your eternal benefit. Our journey begins with a quote that was printed in the Wall Street Journal, and it says, the businessman's hunt for sale boosters is leading him into a strange wilderness, the subconscious mind. The study of human psychology and subconscious mind began with Sigmund Freud in the late 1800s and quickly gathered interest. By the end of his writings in 37, he had come to believe that every human being's libido is distributed either in a manifest or latent fashion over objects of both sexes. So he was saying here that he came to believe through his studies that Everybody was attracted to both sexes to a certain degree. And this illusion strongly colored the underground use of subconscious manipulation, as we will go on to see. So we're taking a look here at an ad that's obviously very old. And the sexualization movement progressed um, not just towards uh, sexuality in the media to manipulate viewers, but also uh, largely towards strange sex. As you can see here, not only does she have a man on either side of her, but the man's uh, hand is on the other man's face. This is something that you don't really notice in the ad unless you study it, but they know that you're not going to look at the ad for very long. So there's a lot of stuff in the peripheral that they add in. And somebody might say, well, maybe the guy's trying to push the other guy away. But judging by the look on man number two's face, I doubt that that's actually the situation. In 1957, Vance Packard articulated for the first time to the mass market in the U.S. the fact that advertisers and marketers were using the science of psychology to know the mind of the consumers and to find out the best way to influence consumers' buying decisions. 
And this was first um, boldly done, well, not so boldly done, on the cover of a magazine for Playboy. There was a beautiful woman on the cover, but it was actually a man dressed up as a woman. And they did a poll, and most of the men did not even recognize that it was a man, but a lot of the women that saw it did recognize it. And there's a quote from Dr. Key's book that was published in 79. It says, the transvestite cover was clearly designed to appeal to the latent homosexuality presumably inherent in all males to the subconscious level. The out silver queen, which is what they were calling him or her, was not the only example of media utilizing repressed sexual identity reversals as a marketing technique. Latent homosexuality has become a frequently utilized subliminal management device in advertising. People's surface desires, needs, and drives have been probed in order to find their points of vulnerability. This is him speaking about what they were doing in the media. Mm -hmm. It takes time, yes, but if you expect to be in business for any length of time, think of what it can mean to your firm in profits if you can condition a million or 10 million children who will grow up to be adults trained to buy your products as soldiers are trained to advance when they hear the trigger words forward march. And all of this before the year 1957. It's pretty sobering, right? And I just want to keep in mind that it's not just in advertising that they're doing this. It's through all avenues of the media, including music and movies and video games. Here's a quote that shows an example of that. The teenage rock market has been studied for years by commercial researchers. And this is kind of the things that they were studying. Purchasing patterns, lifestyles, psychosexual development, mating customs, aggressions, costuming, sex systems, or drive systems, excuse me, paternal, maternal relationships, the whole range of complex needs within the individuals and groups to which they belong. So this is pretty sobering. It kind of gives us an idea of really what was driving the media market behind the scenes. But some of you might be asking, does this really have an impact on lives today? Well, now we're going to go into my testimony. We're going to take a look at how my life was changed by the media while I was growing up. As a young girl, my first love was music. My mom says as soon as I was old enough to, I was singing and dancing everywhere that I went. And a big part of my influence as a young girl was Madonna. Now, I don't really remember enjoying her music, but my mom says that I did. And in 1991, she was interviewed for a magazine. And she was asked about the hints towards homosexuality in her music videos. And this was her response. They, meaning the viewers, digested on a lot of different levels. Some people will see it and be disgusted by it, but maybe they'll be unconsciously aroused by it. If people keep seeing it and seeing it and seeing it, eventually it's not going to be such a strange thing. So she was well aware of what was going on. And again, this was in 1991, so this would have been around the time that I was watching her music videos on MTV. And she doesn't even let her children watch TV now that she's a mother. So by the age of seven, my parents had separated, and we had moved into some low-income housing. And it was there that I met a certain girl, and 
I started having sexual interactions with her. Again, I'm only seven. And because of these interactions that I was having with her, I was learning things about my body that I really shouldn't have known. And so masturbation soon became an addiction for me, and it was a stronghold in my life for many, many years. At the age of nine, I was baptized. I had been infrequently attending a church with a family friend, and the pastor sat me down and he said, do you believe in Jesus? You've been coming here to Sunday school for a long time. Do you want to be baptized? Do you love him and want him to be your savior? And, and I did, but it wasn't like I had a personal relationship with Jesus. I didn't read my Bible or have a prayer life, and so it was not a converted baptism. But nonetheless, around that time, my mother had talked to me about sexual purity, and I wanted to remain pure, and so I was making promises to myself. I was saying that I wanted to stay virgin until I was married, and also that I wanted to abstain from all drugs and alcohol, because my parents had had a lot of tribulation in their marriage, especially towards the end, and alcoholism had been a big driving force of what um, pulled them apart. And so I didn't want those things in my life. When I was 10, I was in the fifth grade, and there was this boy in my class, and he was a little bit awkward, so I wasn't intimidated by him, and for some reason, I didn't understand it at the time, I just decided that I was gonna go out of my way to try and convince everyone in the class that I had a crush on him. You see, whenever I was having sexual interactions with that girl at seven, my mother and my sister found out because I had told someone in the neighborhood and instead of sitting me down and having a sober conversation with me, they kind of used it to poke fun at me. Maybe they just didn't know how to respond. But I was so humiliated and ashamed by that, I thought this is something that I need to hide and I wasn't gonna tell anybody about my, uh, what was going on in my heart. So I thought maybe if I could convince everybody that I had a crush on him, maybe I would, I would appear more normal. But I never, I never gained his attention but in the end, um, when I look back on it, I realized that the enemy at a very young age was, pre was predispositioning me towards seeking the attention of the opposite sex. At age 14, I did start interacting with the opposite sex sexually, and I was really struggling inside of my heart, you know, that teen angst. I was um, settling into a lot of depression. I had low self-worth, and I was searching for a sense of identity. Here is an, uh, an advertisement that I had ripped out of a magazine and hung on my wall. Notice she's got a very curvy hourglass figure, and that was part of my um, depression was that I, I hated the way I looked. I didn't look like the women that I saw in magazines, what was portrayed as beautiful. And I was especially intrigued by the dual personality that you kind of see here. This is advertising um, shoes and accessories, and she has different... Um, different earrings and shoes and stuff on in the reflection, and I was really intrigued by this double personality. Around this time, I was starting to learn things about the Bible. My sister and my father and I had moved to Washington State, and we moved in next door to an Adventist family. And my sister started studying the Bible with them, and she said that sometimes I would just cry, and I would say, people need to know this. Why don't people know this? And she was making the decision to turn towards God and follow him, and she was baptized. But unfortunately, I was turning towards the world and making the decision to go my own way. And I think that the great controversy on page 555 really explains what was happening inside of my heart. It says that by beholding, we become changed. The mind gradually adapts itself to the subjects upon which it is allowed to dwell. 
And I was listening to a lot of very rebellious music. I mean, it started pretty innocent, and the rebellion was just kind of masked, and it was undertones. But I had become a big fan of this certain group, and I was listening to their music, their one CD, over and over and over again. And one night, while I was sitting on the couch listening to that CD, I was thinking, you know what? I don't have to do what everybody tells me I need to do. I can make my own decisions. I know the difference between right and wrong. I can live a little bit crazy. And what's the worst that can happen, right? Well, now that I'm a Christian and I was thinking about that as I was writing um, this part in my testimony that I'm, I'm writing a book, and I thought, I'm going to go back and look at some of the lyrics in that CD that was influencing me so strongly at that time. And one of the songs says, We make this new religion to escape what we've become. Your signal's fading, so let go to face this recreation. And indeed, I was letting go, and I was being recreated, but it was not in a holy way. And as I started to change inside, I started to change on the outside, too. This is just a year later from the previous picture that I showed of myself, but you can see that I'm starting to change on the outside. And that restlessness just settled in as I made this decision to go my own way. I thought it was liberating, but I was really setting myself inside of a prison. I was struggling with anxiety attacks, anorexia, and even suicidal thoughts. I wrote this poem. It says, Dear God, Christ was my Savior. He died for me. And he'd go blind so I could see. But I can't take this any longer. I pray for wisdom and to be stronger. Still nothing I do seems to work. And all I do is feel more hurt. So now I want to take my life. But in my heart, I know it's not right to just give up and try no more and not fight back to even the score. So I'll look to the sky in search of release and hope my heart can find its peace. Out in the Pacific Northwest, I was noting, noticing a lot of minority groups that I didn't really see growing up in Wyoming. And I was very intrigued with them, especially with the industrial goth movement and grunge punk. When I looked at these women, I saw something that was confident, and I really thought this was beautiful. And I also was noticing the very pro-gay movement. And I thought, wow, maybe this isn't something that I need to be so ashamed about. Maybe I don't have to keep it a secret. Some of the music that I was listening to at that time, um, it was more openly blasphemous. Um, one, of the, one of the people that I was listening to, I have a couple quotes from what they said behind the scenes um, around that time. Kurt Cobain said, I knew I was different. I thought I might be gay or something because I couldn't identify with any of the guys at all. None of them liked art or music. They just wanted to fight and get laid. I started to be really proud of the fact that I was gay, even though I wasn't. Bjork said, I think choosing between men and women is like choosing between cake and ice cream. You'd be daft not to try both when there's so many different flavors. These are a couple of the the pictures that I had hanging on my wall at this time. I was 16 years old, and by this point, I had given myself away completely. I just didn't really see any reason to keep my virginity anymore, and so I didn't really feel my, that I was letting myself down when I broke that promise that I made to myself so young. And I had a whole wall in my room that was covered in pictures of scantily clad women. And my father sat me down one afternoon, and he said, Danielle, if there are ways in which you're different from everyone, that's okay. And it's okay to be yourself. And no matter who you are, I'll still love you. And now my dad, he didn't say, Danielle, it's okay if you're gay. But we both knew what he was trying to say. And 
Within a year of that conversation, I was 17 and I moved out of the house. I dropped out of school and I was addicted to marijuana. By 18, I shaved my head and I quit my job and music became my new idol. Extravagant hair, makeup, and dress became a part of my life. It was what I lived and breathed. I wanted to be the essence of art. I started forming distant bonds with the members of my favorite bands, and I became obsessed with the concert scene. Eventually, I was getting into the rave scene and doing street drugs, and I was addicted to heavy electronic music. Some people don't realize how addictive their unhealthy music is, and it really is a drug within itself. I was wearing devil horns frequently to concerts and parties and raves and even just around town. I started drawing stitches across my body, and I would write song lyrics up and down my arms and legs. I was just pretty much a walking billboard for the enemy. One of the songs I was, would most frequently write on my arms and legs would say, remorse is useless now. And in that song, she screams out, remorse is useless now. God doesn't want us back now, baby. And that was the lie I believed. I believed that I'd walk so far out into my rebellion that God would never want me back. I was losing sight of everything that mattered. I was pretty much homeless, sleeping on my friend's couches, and addicted to drugs. Mind, Character, and Personality, Volume 1, describes the degrading process. It says, The mind of a man or woman does not come down in a moment from purity and holiness to depravity, corruption, and crime. It takes time to transform the human to the divine or to degrade those formed in the image of God to the brutal or satanic. I woke up one morning. I couldn't even look in the mirror anymore. My, my nickname was Void, that's what all my friends called me, and it was very appropriate because that's all I was, I was empty inside. And I heard this voice so clear and so strong, and it said, Danielle, you've got to change or you're going to die. So I was only 24, and I had been physically intimate with at least 18 men and women. And what happened to that little girl, that little girl who had said that she wanted to stay pure, that she didn't want to do drugs and alcohol? Well, she was buried underneath a lot of lies and a lot of baggage. So at that call within my mind from the Holy Spirit, I moved back in with my father, and I ran out into the woods, and I just prayed for God to start leading in my life. And I was calling him the wrong name, but he heard that humble cry, and he started to redirect my path as I would give him the freedom to. Christianity really hadn't worked for me, so I started to look into the, the New Age movement and I was looking for knowledge within the world's religions. I found New Age spirituality, and that was really where I felt at home. I wanted to be an energy healer or a shawl woman. And spirit channeling was eventually a great interest for me. And now, whether you're walking away from God in a rebellious act, or you're walking away from God, or you're, you're walking toward what you think is God in the right path, either way is a ditch on the side of the road. And so we have to remember that God's way is the only true way. But as this was happening, my heart was starting to soften because before I didn't want to talk about God at all. And if you did, I'd just walk away. But now I was starting to kind of open up and talk about God here and there. My sister could see that that was happening. And she invited me to go out to an Adventist institution to volunteer on their farm for one summer. 
And I really struggled with that decision, but again, there was this voice in my mind that was saying, Danielle, if you don't go to South Dakota this summer, you're gonna spend the rest of your life thinking, what would have happened if I would have went to South Dakota? And the funny thing was, I didn't just think that once, I thought that over and over and over until I was like, what's the big deal with South Dakota? Why do I keep thinking this? So I ended up going, and at that point, a long-standing relationship that I had been in ended. And I said, you know what? I'm not just going to fall into another relationship with a man. Because I was more attracted to women, I was more awkward and shy around them, and so it was harder for me to develop friendships and thus relationships with them. And it was, so it was easier for me to date guys, even though my interest was really in women. And so I said, I'm not going to take the easy way out anymore. I'm going to give myself the experience that I really deserve and find a woman that I can commit myself to, and then maybe I'll be happy in a relationship. So I decided that I was going to be a lesbian. But while I was out there on the farm, I was spending time with God in the soil, and I was learning from his object lessons in nature. And my heart was being even more softened, even more changed. And as I spent time with Christians, I started to realize that they weren't just these hypocrites that I thought they were. They weren't just robots, but they were struggling through this battle between good and evil just like I was. And then I met a, a man named Dan Gabbert. And when I would meet him in passing, I would acknowledge something that was inside of him. I saw this meekness and humbleness, this light shining out of him, this joy and peace. And I, I thought to myself, every time I would cross paths with him, I don't know what that man has, but I want it too. So I decided that I was going to go to church one Sabbath because I knew he was speaking. And when I went in, I sat down. And the first thing he said was, today we're going to talk about the crucifixion. And I thought, oh, the crucifixion, why that, anything but that? You see, when I thought about God, I thought about light and love and peace and joy. I didn't want to think about death and war and the cross, like the things that I read about whenever I read in the Bible. So then the next thing he said was, and you're probably thinking, oh, the crucifixion, why that, anything but that. He said exactly what I had just thought. And so I said, okay, Lord, you've got something for me here today, and I'm going to listen. Of course, I didn't call him Lord, but Dan started to, to describe something very beautiful. He was saying that sin are the things that we do that transgress the law of God. And when we do those things, we are separated from God. And God is the source of all life, so when we're separated from God, the natural occurrence is death. Just like the law of nature of gravity says that things fall to the earth, the law of nature says that if we're separated from the source of life, we die. It's just a natural occurrence. And I could see that there were things in my life that had separated me from the light. And I understood that. So then he started to say that as sinners, we deserve death, but Christ bore that death for us on the cross, and he bridges that gap for us to come back to God in eternal life. And I spent the rest of that day wrestling with God. This interrupted so much of what I had come to believe, but it seemed so true and so beautiful, and I couldn't shake the thought of it. So I started to kind of open up and talk more about Christianity and maybe kind of give it a chance um, because before I was not interested in giving it a chance, but maybe I would give it a chance now. Then there was a gentleman who came out to the Black Hills, and his name is Tom Meyer, and he and his brothers have a ministry called Little Light Studios. And I spent, um, he spent a couple months out there, and I became friends with him and his wife and, and their daughters. 
And when he was leaving, he gifted me five DVDs, documentaries, and presentations. And it took me a while before I ended up watching them, but the first one that I watched was Magic Kingdom. And a big part of my musical inspiration as a child was Disney. So I love Disney, and I was excited about watching the documentary. But God was about to bring an earth-shattering truth into my life. But it was under a very humble guise, so I wasn't really, I wasn't really expecting it. The first thing that really jumped out to me from this, this documentary was that Disney always teaches young children, follow your heart, listen to your heart, let your heart decide. But the Bible tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And I had read that in the Bible, and I had seen that I couldn't really trust my own judgment and my own heart. And so I started to acknowledge that. I also, uh, my eyes were open to the fact that spiritual concepts are conveyed incorrectly and that these movies are steeped with witchcraft, spiritualism, and occult symbology. I'm sitting here watching this, and I'm thinking, really, Disney? Come on. But then I started thinking about my two favorite Disney movies growing up. The Little Mermaid, which is all witchcraft, and Pocahontas, which is all Native American spirituality. And so I started thinking, well, is it just coincidence that those, those were the two religions that I was most interested in when I became an adult? I don't think that's just coincidence. But then the thing that really hit home for me was when it was talking about how Disney portrays the woman's body. They always have that highly hourglass figure, they have overly sensual body language and coy and seductive facial expressions. And whether you're watching an old Disney movie or a new Disney movie, it's the same. And it's not just in the human characters, but also in the animal characters. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about Thumper's girlfriend and how she really uses her body to seduce him. There are no words exchanged between her and Thumper. She just gets his attention. She, she strides right up to him very sensually, using her body to gain his attention. And then she goes up to him and she kisses him. And then he's Twitterpated. She's the one pursuing him. And within moments of their meeting, they're already having an intimate interaction. And I was thinking, wow. My mind has been programmed from a young age to view the, the life the way that I do, to view spirituality the way that I do, and also to view sexuality the way that I do. This documentary was pointing out that these types of things presented in front of children creates a notion of what femininity is in the mind, and it's very dangerous. But to me, the Holy Spirit was speaking, you've been programmed from a young age, Danielle, and it was not my design for you to be gay and this is not my plan for your life. I was seeing that Satan is real. I had believed in God, but not in Satan. When I watched this documentary, I was left sobbing, and that happened with each one of the documentaries that I watched, all five. I was just sobbing at the end of them. I was seeing the great controversy come to life in front of my eyes. I realized that that was real, and that I was on the losing team if I wasn't on the side of Jesus. So I started studying the Bible, and I started praying about maybe being rebaptized and really committing my heart to God. But I wanted to know that this was really his true church. I wanted to know that this was his truth without any doubt. So I was trying to study, but I was very distracted, especially with school and things like that, until I went to an Army Bible camp in Spangle, Washington. And I heard a message there by Tim Riesenberger. He's right here, and he's cheering. Um, it's called The Truth That Transforms the World. And when I heard that message, I saw a glimpse of God's love for me that was more real than I had ever seen before. 
And at the end of that presentation, I said, I want everybody here to know that I choose Christ. And I went forward for that altar call for baptism, and I really got serious about studying the Word of God. But I spent about a year studying out the principles of the church because whenever I went down into that water, I wanted it to be like the day if I ever get married, when I'm walking down the aisle towards that man, I want to know that this is where God wants me and this is what is his plan. And so I really wanted that kind of clarity and no question in my mind when I was going down to be baptized. And I had that on September 1st, 2012. And I wore a crimson dress all day before my baptism and a white dress all day after my baptism, just kind of to represent what God had done in my life. Jesus saves. God is really true to his promise and his word where he says we can be confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So where are we today in the scheme of things in sex in the media? Well, today... There's about $178 billion spent on advertising. Just this year, in 2014 alone, there was $178 billion spent on advertising. And this number is just projected to grow over the coming years. There's a woman named Mrs. Kilborn, and she has been studying sex in the media for the last four decades, and she has a presentation she's put together and this is a quote from her uh, most recent documentary called Killing Us Softly 4. The neg negative and distorted image of women deeply affects not only how we feel about women, but also how we feel about everything that gets labeled feminine by the culture. Qualities like compassion, cooperation, empathy, institution, or intuition, and sensitivity. Human beings should share the whole range of human qualities and not be told that one sex can have only one set of human qualities and one sex only the other. And there's a lot of confusion that comes in for a lot of people when they have qualities that are supposedly superimposed to the opposite gender. They start questioning their, their, their sense of identity, their sexuality, and this is not something that should be happening. She also said, advertisers always find ways to turn any movement for radical change into just another way to push a product. For example, feminism, as individual expression, is more likely to sell Botox than to change the world. And this is a woman that is all for, you know, equal rights for women as far as, you know, not being used as sex symbols in media. But today, homosexuality is being used to sell everything, from cars, where this woman and her father are walking down the aisle, but when they get to the end, she says, congratulations, Dad, and he's the one that steps up to the pulpit to be married. And then they walk out after being wed, and it says, times have changed, and it's an advertisement for a car. Sex is, uh, homosexuality is being used to sell uh, clothing, and this is just two examples um, of of some advertisements that are being used. There's all kinds of other ones. This was an ad that I just saw on an airplane in the, the flight magazine. This is for selling headphones. It's all over the place. And even to sell cereal. And isn't this sad? Because this used to be an Adventist in, uh, company, right? They say at Kellogg's, we're an evolving culture that respects and accepts employees' sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression so that all employees can be authentic and fully engaged. 
Allstate put out a commercial, and it's very, very emotion invoking. It's, it's terribly sad. It has this song with this man. He starts out as a boy. And the song says, always standing just outside of the circle. No one lets you in. Blame it on yourself. And as he walks through life, he has one hand that's larger than the other. And it puts him out of place. It makes him awkward. And it makes him very ashamed of himself. And then as he gets older and becomes a man, he's looking around at the people on in the subway that are looking at him funny. And he says, if you could only see, there is only light where you think there are shadows. And then he meets a, a man who also has a large hand. And then they take each other's hand and they walk away with each other. And it says, everyone deserves to be in safe hands. And it's an all-state car insurance commercial. And of course, there's all kinds of advertisements just to become aware of homosexuality and transgenders. This one says, not all prisons have bars, and it says, support trans awareness. So it's kind of showing, it's trying to show that sometimes men are trapped behind this mask that they're a man, but inside they're really a woman. And it shows the same thing on the opposite side with a woman being, or a man being trapped inside of a woman's body. And these are just lies from the enemy that have been planted within the media at a subconscious level before, but now it's coming to the forefront and it's being used to rush forward this movement. And the times are becoming like they were in the day of Lot. And I want to also tell you about the Grammys this last year in 2014. I started crying when I watched this performance. I, I you know, sometimes we're sheltered as Adventists. We don't realize what's going on out in the world. There was, uh, it was kind of the crowning act of the Grammys, and this song was played. I'm going to share a few of the lyrics from this song. <clears throat> it says, right-wing conservatives think it's a decision, and you can be cur cured with some treatment and religion. Man-made rewiring of a predisposition. Playing God. Oh no, here we go. America the brave still fears what we don't know. And God loves all his children is somehow forgotten while we paraphrase a book written 3,500 years ago. I want you to realize that God is being pulled into this equation, that there's a lot of confusion even around what God says on this issue. And we have to study the true so that we know what is false. He goes on to say, live on and be yourself. When I was at church, they taught me something else. If you preach hate at the service, those words are anointed. The holy water that you soak in has been poisoned. You know, he's right. Because if we preach hate from the pulpit, that's not anointed from God. For God is love. But while we should have compassion for these people in their unique struggle, that doesn't mean excusing them into their sin and allowing them to be lost for eternity. No law is going to change us. We have to change us. Whatever God you believe in, we come from the same one. Strip away the fear. Underneath, it's all the same love. He says, we have to change us. We know that we can't change us. And it's kind of funny that says, we have to change us, because the chorus of the song that's repeated over and over says, I can't change even if I tried, even if I wanted to. After this song was saying, 33 couples were gathered in the audience, and they all exchanged rings and exchanged vows and were married right there in the middle of the Grammys, sharing by their very union that they support gay marriage and equal rights. 
I'm sharing this because we have to realize what's going on in the world. We have to realize that we have to have compassion on people, yes, but we should not compromise. We still need to lift up the cross. And like Ron shared in his presentation just before, um, my presentation, this is just opening up the door for more perversion to step into the forefront and to be pushed and to be accepted. Because now that, they're, that homosexuals are gaining gay rights for marriage in some states, there are other um, groups and couples that are also pushing for equal rights. He mentioned this, this uh, trio of women that all married each other. There was a man who just recently married his dog. There's even uh, twin brothers that are fighting for rights to marry each other. And there's the NAMBLA movement that um, is the man-boy love association that um, is pedophilia. So we already see these things moving forward in the media. We already see them coming forward. But nonetheless, there is hope in the hopeless. Packard, who I mentioned before, his book uh, in, from 1957, he says that we still have a strong defense available against such persuaders. We can choose not to be persuaded. In virtually all situations, we still have a choice, and we cannot be too seriously manipulated if we know what is going on. That is why I wanted to share this with you today. If we know what's going on, we have the power not to be manipulated. Our eyes are open to what's going on behind the scenes. And I'll tell you what, researching this, I just kind of threw everything in a presentation. I had 250 slides. I have cut this down to bare bones to share it with you today. There is so much more going on with sex in the media today that I couldn't cover um, in the time that we have. This is a statement from Clyde Miller. He says, as we learn to recognize the devices of the persuaders, we build up a recognition reflex. Such a recognition reflex can protect us against the petty trickery of small-time persuaders operating in the commonplace affairs of everyday life, but also against the mistaken or false persuaders of powerful leaders. Christ Object Lesson says, many are sunken in sin. They long to find a solace for their troubles, and Satan tempts them to seek it in lusts and pleasures that lead to ruin and death. He is offering them the apples of Sodom that will turn to ashes on their lips. They are spending their money for that which is not bread, and their labor for that which satisfieth not. But she goes on to say that Christ will perform wonderful miracles if men will but do their God-given part. In human hearts today, as great a transformation may be wrought as has ever been wrought in generations past. That means that just how God changed Paul into Saul, Saul into Paul, he too can change you in your life if you just give him permission to come in and you surrender those things that you're holding on to. Those who are watching unto prayer and are searching the scriptures daily with an earnest desire to know and do the will of God will not be led astray by any of the deceptions of Satan. Isn't that powerful? If we are watching unto prayer, searching the scriptures daily, and, have an, and keeping an earnest desire to know and do the will of God, we will not be led astray by any of the deceptions of Satan. So now I just want to make an appeal to your heart. Today, maybe the Lord has been wrestling with you. You know there's something in your life that you need to give up. 
Maybe it's sexuality, maybe it's not. Maybe it's some kind of media. Maybe it's something else altogether. But you know that Lord, the Lord is calling out to you and saying, I need you to let this go because it is separating you from me. Christ Object Lesson says, every time you refuse to listen to the message of mercy, you strengthen yourself in unbelief. Every time you fail to open the door of your heart to Christ, you become more and more unwilling to listen to the voice of him that speaketh. You diminish your chance of responding to the last appeal of mercy. Let not Christ weep over you as he wept over Jerusalem, saying, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wing, and ye would not. So if that's you today, I want to invite you to stand up and acknowledge that God is calling out to you and saying, I need you to lay this aside. It's not because I want to take something from you that's good for you. It's because I want to take something from you that's only injuring you. So if that's you today, I just want to ask you to stand. I want you to acknowledge to God that I'm surrendering this to you, Lord. And I don't want you to stand just because everybody else is. This is an appeal for your heart directly, and I want it to really be a gesture towards the Lord. Lord, I want to give this to you. I don't want to hold on to it anymore. I want you to be the leader in my life. That is where the safety lies. He has something more beautiful and amazing for us in heaven than we could ever imagine. I want to thank you all for having the courage to stand up today. The Lord sees you. The Lord knows your hearts, and he is already moving to give you the victory. All you have to do is hold it out in your hand and say, Lord, I can't give it. You need to take it, for I only cling to it. But if you just surrender it to him and you do that moment by moment every time the temptation comes in, you are assured to have the victory in Christ Amen. Jesus. So let's bow our heads and close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, you've brought us all here to GYC, and it's such a blessing to be gathered amongst our fellow brothers and sisters. It's easy to have a mountaintop experience and then go home into the valley. But Lord, as we make this commitment to you today, we don't just want to do it now. We want to commit to turning back to you in each moment of temptation, abiding with you moment by moment. Lord, you see each one of us who are standing, including myself. There are things in our lives that we know are separating us from your will for our life. You've given us victory in some areas, but we're still struggling, Lord, and we need your help. So today, as we humble ourselves and we just acknowledge our great need of you, we extend our trembling hand and we ask you, please, Lord, take this from us. We know that you're faithful to do the work that you've promised to do in us if we will just surrender. And today we've done that, Lord. So we step out into the newness of life in you, and we thank you for what you are doing in our lives what you will continue to do in our lives. And Lord, may we all be together on the sea of glass. Let that be our only focus. In Jesus' name and for his sake, I pray. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, 
visit us online at www.gycweb.org.